We're going to study tonight a tshuva, or a michtav, a letter, from Rav Yaakov Lorberbaum of Lisa. Lisa was the city in which he was a rav. His name was Rav Yaakov Lorberbaum. He's usually referred to by the names of his svarim. He wrote a number of svarim. Two of his most famous are the Nesivas Mishpat on Choshen Mishpat, the Chavas Das on Part of Yardea. He also wrote Taras Gitin on the Laws of Gitin, Beis Yaakov on the Laws of Tzuvos, and Karchayim on Helchas Pesach, and a number of other svarim as well. He was one of the, he was one of the greatest poskim of two centuries ago. He's actually one of the greatest poskim of the last several hundred years, one of the first names in Halacha. He is not actually well-known as the author of Chuvas. I don't know if he didn't write many, if they just aren't published, but he's primarily known for his commentaries to the Shulchan Aruch. But we're going to study tonight an interesting letter that he wrote just about 200 years ago, around uh, 1819 or so. The subject, the, the subject was the Hamburg Temple controversy, or perhaps we should say the first Hamburg Temple controversy, this was an event that occurred, it was one of the great explosive controversies in the, in the beginning of the reform movement, the nascent reform movement in the beginning of the 19th century. This was, what, this was one of the first times, one of the first great clashes where the, the tension between the traditionalist, the orthodox, and the new reform movement came to a head and it boiled over in a tremendous controversy about the temple in Hamburg. The temple in Hamburg was a reform temple, essentially. It was a temple that had introduced a number of innovations that the reformers were interested in. It's worth noting, as we'll see in Rav Yaakov's discussion tonight, it's worth noting that reform then, at that early stage, was in some ways a lot less radical than it became in its later incarnations. The things they were arguing about had to do with things that weren't clearly usher at all, some of them. Some of them might have been usher, but there were technical questions about Isurim Drabanan. Later, the reform ate shellfish and pork, and they allowed intermarriage, and they abandoned Shabbos, and so on. Many of these things hadn't yet occurred. The, 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 great, the great controversy in the, in, in, the, in the second decade of the 19th century was not about anything so, so radical a deviation from tradition as that. The, the arguments had been about some relatively modest reforms to Jewish practice. In particular, there were three or four major issues that they were fighting about back then. One of them was praying in the vernacular. In, 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 later, in later generations of the controversy, sermons in the vernacular was an issue. At this point, it was actually praying in the vernacular. The reformers wanted to translate certain prayers into German. A second issue was they, they, they were trying to, da- a more serious issue perhaps, is that they were trying to downplay the prayers for the redemption and the rebuilding of the temple. They wanted to feel more European and more comfortable with the world in which they lived, and they were downplaying or omitting references to the Geula and Mashiach and Karbanos and the Beit HaMikdash. Additionally, the, going, back to, going back to the questions, going back to the questions of... Um, Going back to the questions of praying in the vernacular, there were questions about other types of alterations to the prayers, to adopt Svardic pronunciation. Again, none of these things are exactly harig valyavar. None of these things are gross violations of the Jewish tradition. Maybe taking out Mashiach and Beis Hamikdash is, uh, is, the, is, is symbolic of a grave theological problem, but many of these other things wouldn't seem to be the end of the world. 
And the last great point of contention was the organ. Um, <clears throat> someone trying to speak, it's, it's coming out very garbled, so I'm just, mu- so I'm just muting you because I, I can't really hear uh, anything that you're saying, but uh, sorry. So the last great question was the organ. Churches had organs, they had organ music in, the, in churches, and the reformers, much of their program had to do with assimilating and adopting, adopting modes of Western civilization, of modern Western civilization, European civilization. And one of the things they tried was, one of the things they were doing was they were importing the organ into synagogues. So the halakha controversy about that came in two parts. The first part was organ on Shabbos. Can you play an organ on Shabbos, either by a Jew playing it or at least by a non-Jew playing it? And can you have an organ during the week? Let's say we don't accept an organ on Shabbos. Can you have an organ during the week? These were the these were the, the, the these were the major issues that were being debated in the first Hamburg Temple controversy. So the the the, the controversy came to a head when the reformers, people like Aaron Hurin and a number of other uh, luminaries of the early reform movement. They, 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 a number of chuvas they wrote of the, the liberals or the reformers they, they assembled their chuvas into a uh, into a into a sefer called Noga Hatzedek, the the radiance of justice with an essay at the end called by the editor called Or Noga that 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 was the name of the sefer and the essay that was defending and justifying their uh, reformist practices and the the people in Hamburg the traditionalists consulted Rabbanim all over Europe, and they had dozens of tshuvas from major Rabbanim throughout Europe, which many of these were assembled, compiled, and published in a counter-polemical work called Ela Divra Habris. So, so Noga HaTzedek and Or Noga were the reformer public, the reform publications, and Ela Divra Habris was the orthodox uh, publication defending tradition and criticizing these reforms. So in Ela Divri Abris, the chuvas that were published, the letters that were published, were by many different authors. The one we're going to study tonight is by Rav Yaakov Lorberbaum. Again, he's not famous as the author of letters, of chuvas, but we're going to study tonight a letter he wrote, which was published in the Sefer, Ela Divri Abris. Again, it's very much a polemic. The style is different from many of the chuvas we've seen, which are more dispassionate, technical dissections of halachic issues. This is pure polemic. But nevertheless, these were issues he felt very strongly about, He's going to oppose the organ. He's going to oppose praying in the vernacular. He's going to oppose other types of uh, other types of reforms and modernizations of the liturgy. And we'll see. Uh, we'll see how he expressed himself. What his concerns were: halachic, metahalachic, theological. We'll see what his concerns were, and we'll see the language and the passion that he uses to uh, express his opinion. So they introduce him. The editors of the work introduce him as. Harav, Hagon, Hagadol, Hamafursim, Lishvach, the Av Basin of Lisa. He's often referred to as Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa after the seat of his rabbinate. The author of Nesivas HaMishpat, Chavaz Das, Taras Gittin, several of his farm, some lesser known farm, Masinisim, Makar Chaim, that is pretty famous actually, Imre Yosher. So he, his letter was addressed to the Basin at Sadek of Kilikidosha of Hamburg. The Basin was an organ of the traditionalists. They were the ones fighting against this temple, and they were the ones who had solicited opinions by great Rabbanim throughout Europe to weigh in on the, the controversy that was roiling Hamburg. So he begins his letter by talking about uh, how, the, how this controversy was making waves throughout Europe. Rasha, Batach el Haaretz, 
Shmuel Otova, we, we've heard uh, bad things are happening, innovations, changing Nusach HaTfilah, the, the traditional Nuschos that go back to the Anshin Kesegdola to pray in European languages, and also Lospal Balaz, and also Velosher Bu'ugav, to play using an Ugav, and Ugav, of course, is a musical instrument that we mentioned in Tehillim, but it, the Ugav at that time was used to refer to the organ, common in churches, being introduced into the synagogues by the Reformers. So the Reformers, even they, weren't going so far yet as to have Jews play the organ on Shabbos. They had Lashir Bu'ugav basic Knesset Lai Nachri B'Shabbos. They had non-Jewish organists playing the organ on Shabbos. Tacha Shalosh, Tacha Shalosh, Aretz, These are three terrible things, changing the Nusach of the Tvila, praying in, pray, uh, that, uh, changing the Nusach, praying in Laz, praying in, in, in non-Hebrew languages, and the organ. These are the three great sins that he is not going to accept, that he is going to uh, challenge. Now we should note, parenthetically, some of the other writers on this topic mention that it actually turns out that in Prague, centuries earlier, there had been an organ in the shul. They had actually had a musical Kabbalah Shabbos. We think of this today as something the Neo-Hasidim do, with, uh, or, the, or the conservative movement does, with, uh, with playing, playing guitars during Kabbalah Shabbos. This actually was something that was done in Prague. They had an organ three, three centuries ago. They, they used an organ in shul. However, the traditionalists hastened to point out it was carefully controlled and very limited. They daven Kabbalah Shabbos very early, so it wasn't really Shabbos yet, and, they made, and there were takanos, there were, there were rules that required the organ be shut down well before Shabbos actually began. So chas v'shalom to allow the organ once it's actually Shabbos. But they did actually, this is true, they did actually have an organ. The traditionalists conceded there was actually an organ in at least one shul in Prague. The Altnai shul in Prague had an organ, and that was being held up as a precedent, but uh, Rav Lorberbam was not going to get into that. He just says these are three unacceptable things they're doing. They are changing details of the, of the liturgy, they're changing the language of the liturgy, and they're introducing an organ in shul on Shabbos. He's actually going to condemn an organ even during the week, but he mentions initially the, 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 the especially intolerable fact that the organ is being played on Shabbos. So first of all, he unabashedly says, before he goes, before he gets into the merits of these, uh, of these practices and the arguments in their defense, he, he, he candidly acknowledges he is going to spend a little time engaging in an ad hominem attack against, the, against his opponents. He says, before we get into the gufa and yanim, to show how they're wrong, we're going to look Trila el hamamtsi, the promulgator of these innovations. I'm not actually sure which of the early reformers he's referring to. doesn't name names, so I'm not sure if this is which one of these figures he's talking about, Charin or somebody else. But let's consider, he says, the character... Let's consider the, the person who's introducing these things, and Yoyer HaPoel Alapula. he has no problem with making that hominem attack, he says, let the, the character of the one behind these, these, uh, these, these reforms, let, let his character shed some light on the value of these reforms. He and his reforms are all the same, they're all equally uh, worthless. Ha'isha Machaber, he says, Divrei Oven, Holech HaSheicha Ve'ein Nogalo, Vein Nogalo is a, is a play on words, a reference to the, the name of the Sefer of his opponents, the, the Noga HaTzedek. He's Ishogim, a Turaf Bedasu. He's a crazy person, he says, and an ignoramus. Afilu Bey Barav Lokara. Doesn't know how to learn, doesn't know anything. He, he quotes a mistake that he made. He says on page 38 of, uh, of, uh, of Noga HaTzedek, 
He, uh, the mistake he makes is a very technical one he accuses him of making. He says that he brought a pasuk for the din of Tvila for a Balkari before he can learn Torah, someone who had a seminal omission before he can learn Torah. He brought a pasuk. The pasuk actually is referring to being Tovel for Truma, not before learning Torah. A fairly technical, fairly, uh, fairly, you know, limit, a fairly small mistake, it would seem, but he, he, he holds this up. I guess you have to see the sugya. Maybe it is a gross mistake if you know the sugya. Uh, he, he quotes one example of a relatively you know, small mistake, and he says, Ein davar, and generally says it's not worth wasting time dealing with the quality of his arguments. He has no Torah, he's a complete ignoramus, he says. He has no yiras hate, he has no fear of heaven, fear of sin. He has no milas hamidos, he's a bad character. He says he's only doing this, he's only publishing this polemical work. He has mercenary motives, he, he's not interested in helping anybody else. He's selfish, all he cares about is himself. He's only doing this to, uh, to make a profit for himself, to sell books, he says, to make money, he says. That's all he cares about. He says he doesn't care how he makes money. If he makes his 10 or 20 uh, silver shkalim by, by playing cards and playing dice, what he used to, as he used to do in Posen, he says, before he, uh, when he was there, he whiled away most of his nights gambling. Now he has a new, uh, a new, a new business. Now his business is selling uh, racy, controversial works about uh, reform Judaism, he says, printing a safer and he gets money. That's all the same to him. Money is money. That's all he cares about. He has no, uh, he has no uh, loftier motives. And that's why he can be Mesus and Weidiach. He can seduce people away from the service of Hashem. But Chalkas Lashono, with his smooth tongue, he can, yes, it's true, his initial reforms are, are fairly modest, he says, but, it, but it's, uh, it's, an, it's an incremental process, he says. Uh, he'll, he'll go on and on, and sooner or later... He'll be uh, like the Nachash and Chava. First he got her to touch the, the tree, then he got her to eat from the Eitzadas. It's a gradual, incremental process, he says. Even if his initial reforms are relatively uh, minor, we know where this is going, we know where this is going to end up. And this is a theme that he's going to return to throughout his letter, that even if we could justify some of these reforms in and of themselves, they are the nose of the camel under the tent. They are leading to uh, more serious reforms. We have to nip this in the bud. We have to... We have to put our foot down and completely shut out any attempt to reform, to reform Judaism because the things are going to get much worse before they get better. And this is actually something that whatever, however we evaluate the, the, the merits of his other arguments, this is something in which he and the overwhelming consensus of the Orthodox rabbinate proved to be all too correct about, of course, that these the reforms certainly did not stop with uh, being matiri surim drabanan on Shabbos, like playing an organ via a non-Jew, as we mentioned. It ended up with Chil Shabbos and eating Machalas Asuros and intermarriage and so on, and rejecting Torah mitzvahs in general and the divinity of God and so on. Even so, obviously the, the Orthodox were entirely correct about this that these reforms were not going to uh, they weren't going to stop there. They were simply the first steps on uh, down a, uh, a very radical path. Okay, so he doesn't think much of his opponents. He doesn't think much of their Torah scholarship of their. Uh, of the purity of their motives, of their character. He thinks that they're low and uh, low and mercenary characters, he says. Okay. He tells, so he says, he calls out to the, the holy community of Hamburg, the glorious, uh, wonderful community of Hamburg. He says, compare this guy, this clown, he says, compare him. Compare him to the lofty, to the lofty leaders, the, the exalted leaders that you had in your past. Arayas HaTorah, the lions of Torah. The great rabbis you had, the author of the Knesset Yecheskel, the author of the Rambatumim, other Gaonim, he says, 
this guy, he says, does he hold a candle to the, to the great rabbinic figures in your past, he says, he thinks he's right and everyone else is wrong, his ideas are right, no one else knew the truth except for him, they all were benighted and old-fashioned and, and didn't understand the great truth that he realized. Throughout, the, throughout this letter, he's going to appeal to the pride of the community in Hamburg that uh, have more respect for yourself than to follow this adventure, this, uh, you know, this guy who's, who's departing from hundreds of years, thousands of years of tradition. He says, have more respect for yourself. Remember, the, remember your honor, the, the, the loftiness of your past, he says. Don't give in to this kind of seducer, this kind of mercenary adventure. Don't be, don't be swayed by his uh, smooth tongue. What, it, what was wrong with the Torah that your ancestors had, that your great rabbinic, that, that your great rabbis of the past endorsed and held dear? What's wrong with their Torah, their Minhagim? Do you really think this guy has so much to offer that, uh, that your great rabbinic uh, leaders of earlier generations, uh, they, they, they weren't as smart as him? So he says, it's true, yes, he, that even if we find, even, even if you're going to tell me that you found in the Noga HaTzedek, you found... Maybe you'll find some things that actually make sense, some things that are actually plausible, and uh, some things that are actually real Torah, he says. Even that, he says, that's just plagiarism. If you found anything worthwhile in the Sefer, it's, near, it's a near certainty, he says, that he plagiarized them from someone else, and he, uh, he, claimed he attributed them to himself and claimed they were, they were the products of his own intellect, but... Uh, what he, what he says is generally worthless, and the stuff that he uh, and the stuff that is worthwhile is not his own. That's the that's the legendary Jewish scholarly joke. Slightly different point, but there, there's a famous uh, an ep, there's a legendary book review of uh, you know, some 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 reviewer reviews a, a Jewish studies book, and he says this book contains much that is new and much that is good. Unfortunately, that which is new is not good, and that which is good is not new. So uh, the Rav Lorberbaum says something similar about uh, about the Noga HaTzedek, that most of it is worthless, he says, and that there, there is some stuff that might be legitimate, that's just cribbed and plagiarized from some, somebody else, he assumes. The, 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 author's, uh, the author's team, the author's associates, and those who supported him, he says, Anashim HaMeslach Tamelov, Machberes Avanazeh, to add to his arguments, he says, they're all... Uh, these people are a drop in the bucket in terms of the, the quality and quantity of their scholarship compared to Rov Yisrael. He's appealing to authority here, but Rov Yisrael, Rabbani Azman, the, the rank and file, the vast majority of the Orthodox rabbinate does not accept these uh, radical ideas. And uh, whoever these people are, he says, he might have gotten the support of a few rabbis here or there, he says, but they're, they're outliers, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're against the, the overwhelming consensus, he says. And Khalil, most most rabbanim agree. Most orthodox rabbis agree. Chalila l'shana shum davar to make these these types of changes in Jewish practice in Jewish liturgy. So now, after he finished uh, cutting his opponent down to size, mocking him for his ignorance, for his uh, poor, for his bad character, and so on, now he's going to address the issues on the merits. Now he's going to discuss the actual reforms that were being proposed, that were being implemented in Hamburg. So again, the three were changing the Nusach of the Tefillah, making various changes, praying in the vernacular, and the organ. So he's going to deal with the organ first, and the organ, to me, is the most interesting and fascinating part of this tshuva. So again, the organ, there are two issues. One issue is playing the organ on Shabbos, and there's an Isra Midrabanan to play music on Shabbos, Isra Midrabanan to dance on Shabbos, 
certainly not to play music, certainly to play music on Shabbos. It's all prohibited. It's, it's Midrabanan. Midrabanan, there's no Easter in playing music, but Midrabanan, there's an Easter to play music. And then during the week, there might be other Easterim, as we'll see soon. So, Natik Mizev and Navo let's discuss the, the underlying uh, issues at stake here. He says, Rishona, he says, the Ugav, the Shabbos, playing the organ on Shabbos. So, the reformers, they knew how to learn. They, 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 understood, the, they understood the halakhic issues. They knew that music is usher on Shabbos. So their hatter was that it was a shvus v'makom mitzvah. That we know that you're not allowed to ask a non-Jew normally to do malacha for you on Shabbos. But that issue itself is an issue midrabanan, asking even to do malacha daraisa, asking a non-Jew to drive to the store for you, to, to pick a fruit off a tree, that's certainly usher. But that issue is midrabanan. And therefore we find leniencies in Chazal. Chazal were mekil to allow... Amir Lakum to allow asking a non-Jew to do malacha, they allowed it in certain cases for a chola, for someone who's sick. But Makom Mitzvah, Makom Mitzvah, there's a great debate whether we allow a, uh, a single shvus Makom Mitzvah or a shvus to shvus Makom Mitzvah. Certainly, if you have a non-Jew play the organ, that's a shvus to shvus. Asking a non-Jew to do anything, that's one shvus because you're not doing it yourself. The non-Jew is doing it. It's still Oster, but it's Oster Medrabanan. And the organ itself, playing music, is only a shvus also. So we have a heter of shvus to shvus b'makom mitzvah. The reformers argued that having an organ in shul can qualify as a mitzvah. Once it's a mitzvah, if we add one shvus or two shvus together, that becomes shvus to shvus, and that's the heter of uh, shvus to shvus b'makom mitzvah. This is something that's commonly used in uh, in, in, in halacha today. So if, if you want something done in your house, you can't just ask a non-Jew to do it. Even, because even if it's a shvus to shvus, you can't just, even if it's you know, turning, on, turning on a non-incandescent light, you can't just have a non-Jew turn on a fluorescent light in your house, even though it's shvus to shvus. Shvus to shvus is still usher. However, when there's a great need, for example, in shul, if the lights are off in shul, and people can't daven, that's a shvus to shvus for, for a mitzvah of the rabbim, for the tzibur, or for, a, uh, for other types of mitzvahs, so we're, it, 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 it's not that difficult to allow a shvus to shvus, provided we can establish that it's makom mitzvah. It's clearly a shvus to shvus. Asking a non-Jew is certainly a shvus. Playing an organ is certainly a shvus. Putting them together in serial like this is a shvus to shvus. So if we were to accept that playing the organ, that the having an organ in shul is makom mitzvah, there would be a very solid case to be made that we could allow it. Says Rabbi Yaakov Lorberbaum. Your argument falls apart, he says, because I don't think there is any element of mitzvah in having an organ in a shul. On the contrary, he says, Having an organ is usher, it's usher during the week as well. Why? What's wrong with having an organ during the week? He mentions an isser, which is not, uh, we don't pay much attention to this today generally, but people don't, although some poskim are quite strict about it. The halacha is, you're not allowed to play music, you're not allowed to play, uh, you're not allowed to play instrumental music, it's Xera because of Avelis of the Chorban, you're not allowed to do that. We discussed this previously, Ramosha has chubas about this, where, he, where he's fairly strict, Ramosha goes so far as to recommend stringency even about, certain stringency even about vocal music, even about, uh, even about singing in certain cases, but the, certainly instrumental music is Asher, the Gemara says, the Rambam says, the Shulchan Aruch says. As we mentioned previously, there are certain leniencies, some say that the Isra is only is only during meals, when you, uh, or a certain other context, the way kings and princes used to have music, when they, w- they would wake up to music, they would have meals to music, doesn't apply to a concert, but other posts are very machmer. 
So the Rabbi Yaakov here does not get into the, the fact that this is Machlokas, whether, whether he, just, he just flat out says that it's Usser. Music in general, instrumental music is Usser. Again, it's hard to know how much of this is because he's engaging in polemic here, so he's willing to kind of play up the stringent views and neglect to mention there are more lenient views as well. Maybe he actually Paskin like the more stringent views. Again, this is an Isser that we've barely heard of today because we routinely ignore it. People point out, my, my father has mentioned that uh, Rabelsky, I think it was, refused to, refused to allow a restaurant to, to, to have music during the meals because music during a meal is certainly a problem. Yes? What about humming to yourself? What about humming? Simcha wants to know about humming. So again, humming is vocal music, not instrumental. Vocal music is more lenient. There are some who are stringent about about vocal as well. The minig of Klai Yisrael certainly is to be lenient about, about vocals and perhaps even instrumentals, outside meals. But uh, so the minig certainly is to be lenient about just singing to yourself or humming to yourself. But the, the, the Rav, Yaakov, Rav Yaakov of Lisa Hare, at least in his polemic against the, the, organ, the organ, says that, that instrumental music is flat-out usser, even shalom alayayin. Some say it's only when you're drinking wine, but he says the halacha is not like that. It's usser in general. By Chassan Kala, they allowed it. There was one specific carve-out that, uh, that, uh, that uh, everyone agrees, that's undisputed, that they allowed music, and that is music at a wedding. At weddings, they allowed music. So, but in general, music is usher. So he says, these, these reformers, they said that music during tefillah is a mitzvah. He says, that, that doesn't make any sense, he says. Comparing it to Chassan Vakala, he says, Chassan Vakala, the, 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 having Simchas Chassan Vakala itself is a mitzvah. So yes, having music is, it was allowed because that's considered a mitzvah. The reformers argue that just like Chassan Kala is a mitzvah, so you can have music, some music in shul, they allowed music as well because that's for the purpose of mitzvah as well. But he says, that doesn't make any sense, he says, because simcha at a wedding is unequivocally a mitzvah. There's no question that, that having simcha at a wedding is a mitzvah. Simcha's Chassan Vakala, he says. But music during prayer, he says, heichon matzinu shasimcha bo mitzvah. Where do we ever find that there's a mitzvah to have Simcha at, at prayer, during prayer. The Rav Yaakov Lorberbem's discussion here is incredibly Litvish. The Hasidim, the Neo-Hasidim, the, the, the Karl Bachians will, uh, will not fathom what he's saying here. But he says, uh, no such thing. We never find that there is any religious value of having Simcha when you pray. I remember when I was learning in Yeshiva in Pesach, the people used to want to go away for the Yom Naraim to go daven at their local familiar shuls. The Rashiva didn't like it. The Rashiva used to fill... Rameir Stern used to fail that it was better for people religiously to stay in yeshiva. So I remember when somebody asked him permission to, uh, to go away for the Yom Naram, for Yoshana. So Shiva asked him, why do, you want it? why do you want to go away? So he said, uh, I enjoy the davening better at, uh, at the shul that I'm used to. So Shiva looked at him and he said, for those of you who are familiar with Rameir Stern, this is just, uh, this is just a quintessential Mayor Stern anecdote, he said, this is about uh, 25 years ago, so I can't swear to the accuracy of this, but as I recall it, he said, he said, he looked at the person and he said, I know Chazal talk about Avas Hashem, love of Hashem. I know they talk about Avas Torah, love of Torah. I know they talk about Avas Yisrael, love of uh, Klal Yisrael, he says. I'm not aware, he says, of any source in Chazal for Avas Tfilah, that you're supposed to enjoy and, uh, and, and like Tfilah, he said. That's the point that Rav Yaakov Lorberbaum is making here. Heichan matzinu simcha ba Where do we ever find that simcha is an appropriate mode for tefillah? That, that, that it's a mitzvah to have simcha. Adarabah, he says, mavur v'nigla, 
Sheikar Tfilaseinu Bakashaseinu, the primary Tfila, he says, is for Kaparaschet. The, the, the core of Tfila, the essence of Tfila, is begging forgiveness. It's true, we start, he says, introduction to Tfila is we, we say the Shvach, the first three brachas are praise for Akash Baruch Hu. The Gemara says you, that, that, that's, the, that's the protocol. How do you ask for atonement? You first, you first propitiate Hashem as you would propitiate a human king by singing his praises, and then you get to please forgive us for our averis. How can we go, he says, how can we appear before the king of the world in klesher v'simcha, in a musical instrument, in joy, he says. That makes no sense, he says. We know that we're chotim, we understand that we're, uh, that we're, uh, that we're sinners. He gives, a, uh, he gives a great mushal. He says, malchusa da'ara, he says. Let's make the analogy of a terrestrial king. Someone comes before the king to beg for his life, to beg for a, uh, for a pardon, for a commutation of his sentence. He knows he's guilty, he's, 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 he's convicted of some terrible crime, and he goes before the king to beg for his life, and he brings the drums and the, and the harps, and he starts singing to the king. He says, the king would be furious. The king would say, what do you think you're doing here? If you understand you're the magnitude of your sin, you're not going to stand here singing to me and playing your guitar, he says. But you come crying, you come with supplication, he says, Yes, he says, it's true. If, if you don't have any Averis, if, 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 if you've been a Tzaddik and you've been great, he says, then yes, then that's a good time to approach God, Bashir, and with uh, and Bashir, and so on, he says, and the same thing applies to God, he says. When they had the Beis HaMikdash, yes, in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, he says, we know that the Levian played Shir, that was part of the Avodah every day, they had music and instruments and singing, he says, yes, because in Yerushalayim, the Jews were close to Akash Baruch Hu, they had the Beis HaMikdash, Every night, the Gemara says, Beis Mikdash would erase everyone's sins. So the Jews always lived in a state of, uh, of, of innocence, of, uh, of, of purity, he says. So yes, so then they were able to sing, uh, to have clay share. Simchas Beis HaShoeva, there was a lofty spiritual moment. They had Ruch HaKodesh. They reached uh, lofty spiritual levels. Yes, then it was appropriate to have music and so on, he says. But after the Churban, he says, no Beis Mikdash, Batal Ruch HaKodesh. Pascha Nevua, no more Nevua. We, we don't have any means of Kapara, true Kapara anymore, he says, as we say in the Avodah Yom Kippur, how, how sad it is that we don't have the great uh, spiritual boon of the Avodah Yom Kippur, the Avodah in general. All we have is Tfilah, he says, we've done terrible chait. We believe that Shem accepts our Tfilah as well, but it's not the same level as the Beis HaMikdash, he says. Everyone does Averis. How can you appear before Melech Malchem Lachem, he says, Bashiru Klei Zemer? To appear before God with music, he says, that, that's an incredible, uh, incredibly hypocritical, anomalous, he says. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Chote bal yiskaya, chote bal yisnaya. He says, he says oh, we, have to, we, have the, we have to approach God as a sinner does, as a sinner would approach a, a human king. First you praise the king, and then you beg, and you cry, and you plead for your life, he says. And therefore, music is only appropriate for a simchas chasen v'kala, because that itself is a mitzvah, but tzvila... It's certainly not a mitzvah, he says. It's, uh, it's, it's against the will of God. It's wrong, he says. So he says that there is no basis for simcha and tefillah. The organ, therefore, is certainly not a mitzvah. If anything, it's an avery, he says. And therefore, on Shabbos, there's no question. On technical halachic grounds, it has nothing to do with simcha, schas, and v'kala. What he's referring to is that there were actually some poskim who allowed, when, when they had a wedding, you, don't, you can't get married on Shabbos, but they used to have weddings that would begin on Friday and would run into Shabbos, and sometimes they would actually have music, they would have non-Jewish musicians playing instruments on Shabbos, and that's some poskim allowed for Simchas Chasen Vakala. Good, that's because Simchas Chasen Vakala is a mitzvah, he says. It's a mitzvah to have simcha, it's a mitzvah to have music. But in shul, he says, music in shul, 
Perish the thought, he says, it's an is- there, once it's not a mitzvah, it's an Isra, Gomer, and Shabbos, it's a Shvus, the Shvus, Shalobim, like a mitzvah, he says, and it's absolutely, it's absolutely Aser. Even during the week, he says, it's also Aser, because first of all, we said before, the Chavastas is, he, he's working here with the assumption that music is prohibited after the Chorban in general, unless it's a specific mitzvah, a specific reason for it. Once there's, no, once there's no mitzvah to have music, it's Aser because of that Gzeira, because of the Chorban. Even on Yom Tovim, he says, there is a mitzvah of Simcha, but B'Sha'as Tefillah, again, B'Sha'as Tefillah, who we mentioned Chait, we say M'Pnei Chata'enu, that that's the core of Musaf, M'Pnei Chata'enu, Galinu Me'artenu, because of our sins, we have been exiled from our land. Vada, he says, certainly, Simcha is not a mitzvah at that time. Again, Ech Yalaladas, how is it conceivable, he says, to, to approach the king, to beg forgiveness, and we have Shir Biyado, Einzim Avake, Shalomenayetz, that's not propitiating Hashem, that is angering Hashem, that is completely wrong-headed to approach God with music and song. Yes? Well, I have to change my name. I can't be... I, I have to be happy because I'm Simcha. Simcha points out that his name is Simcha. He's a little disturbed well, by... I have to be happy. I have to change my name. He's a little disturbed by this uh, attack on Simcha. Um, it's obvious. I mean, obviously, you say he do a Hashem to Simcha, but Right, so... Right, we, 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 right. Jason's pointing out we do say Ivdus Hashem Basimcha and Bolafana Bernana, but it sounds like the it sounds like the Chavastas's position is that that was that, that that was specific to the time where uh, that was specific to where they had the base of and the Jews were in entirely. Uh, he says Az Hashem when they had the, when they when when they had the when people are tadikim when they have the base of for Kapara, that's when we can say Lavo Bashir over Nana. That's when those type of psukim apply. Again, whether this is pshutur shal mikra of all the psukim in, uh, in Tehillim, I'm not sure. We, we can debate that. But this is his view, at least, of the, the appropriate mode of religious, uh, religious service. And Gullus is not supposed to be one of joy. It's supposed to be one of, uh, of worry, of anxiety. Of, uh... Again, it's a little difficult to know whether everything he says here, he meant halach uh, or some things here are part of his polemic. He does seem quite passionate about this. He does seem to... Uh, Believe this very strongly. Other post, other Litvish poskim have said similar things as well. I like to quote that another great 19th century battle was weddings and shuls. It's a, it's, per, it's pretty common today, particularly outside the New York area, that Orthodox people get married in shuls. It's common enough. This was a tremendous battle in the 19th century. There were earlier traditions, German traditions. They did used to do that, but in the 19th century there was a great battle about it. The the, the reformers again began to popularize that because they wanted to be like the Christians who got married in churches. That was apparently one of the reasons. The Orthodox, uh, the reactionaries fought it bitterly. So one of the tshuvas written on this topic by Rabbi Yosef Zechariah Stern, who was a legendary Litvish authority, he, he, he was against the practice of wedding in shuls for the similar reasons to Rav Lorber Bamher. He says, weddings? Weddings involve music and levity. He says, joy and music in a shul? What could be more antithetical to the character of a shul than music? Music completely does not belong in shuls, he says. It's the opposite of the mode of the shul. The shul to, the, a shul today is about somberness and anxiety and seriousness and COVID rosh, he says. Music has no place whatsoever in a shul. That's the position that Rav Lorberbaum took earlier as well, that music has no place in a shul. He says, there is a Gemara, the Gemara says, Ein omdin palo mitoch simcha shal mitzvah. The frame of mind in which a person should try to try to arrange uh, to be in when he davens is simcha shal mitzvah. 
He says that means before you daven, you should engage in something of mitzvah, like learning Torah. But during tefillah, he says that that's a kind of preparatory frame of mind. He says during tefillah, there's no basis for any kind of simcha. Certainly not klesher, he says. Certainly not instruments, he says. And uh, instruments completely don't, don't belong in shul. Now again, I'm not sure what he would say about vocal singing. This whole, his whole diatribe here is directed against instruments in shuls, like organs. I'm not sure what he would have said about just singing itself in the shul, Karlbach singing or other kinds of joyous singing in shuls. If it, it would seem that logically his objection to be, would be to, to anything that, that involves a, a, a key, a register of joy, uh, whether it's instruments or not. But again, specifically what he's talking about in context was instruments, although his arguments would seem to be would seem to uh, would, would seem to be would, would seem to weigh in against vocal singing as well in shuls. Although again, I don't know what he actually would have said about that. So now he goes on. He moves on from the organ to the other issues of tampering with the tampering with the language of the prayers and changing the language to away from Hebrew. Shinohenoschos, he says, he makes the argument essentially from tradition. He says all of Aramuna, the entire basis of our religion, it all rests on, it all rests on Amuna and tradition, he says. We're, he says, we're not allowed to rely on our Seichel, he says. Seichel, is, he, he takes, a, he takes a, a very anti-rationalist position. Relying on reason, he says, is, is a dangerous thing to do. Reason is fallible, he says. Reason is uh, not capable of comprehending, comprehending the divine and of arriving at the truth on its own, he says. Reason can, can serve uh, to accompany the Torah, to help develop what, what, we, what we learn from the Torah, what we have in our tradition, but to rely on reason by itself is dangerous and is, uh, can pose a grave problem for religion. He goes on like this, he says, uh, brings various drushes and psukim, he says, every nation, he says, is required to, uh, required to uh, maintain its traditions, he says. He says that, he, he takes it, in general, he takes a position against religious reform, Religious reform have been sweeping Europe for 300 years already since the, since the Reformation and so on, since uh, Luther and uh, the Protestants and back in the 16th century already, or earlier. But the, he says all the established, all the crowned heads of Europe were, were against uh, religious reform, he says. Everyone has to uh, stick to his religion and not try to escape his religion and not, uh, not engage in sectarianism. I mean, Europe had been tearing itself apart for centuries because of wars of uh, Protestants and Catholics and fissures within Protestants and so on, and heresies of all sorts. But he says, certainly the, the crowned heads of Europe that prize stability, certainly he says uh, state religion was considered conducive to that. The French Revolution was, was, was going to be an attack on religion and, uh, and the monarchy combined. Obviously, uh, at that time, the governments of Europe often found themselves aligned with other reactionary forces like established religion, but uh, Rev. Lorberbaum approves of that. He says they're on the right track. They're trying to preserve tradition and religion. It's very important, he says. He says religion, the fabric of religion, is crucial to the maintenance of uh, civil order, he says. He makes a curious argument for why. We would probably say just morality in general is often rooted in religion. He makes a specific argument about oaths, he says, people need to take oaths to, in court, he says, and oaths rest on a religious foundation. People, people's uh, fear of oaths derives from religion. Without religion, uh, that would unravel, he says. All right, you know, people have other bases for integrity. People can, uh, can lie with religion, they can lie without religion, but he feels that, that religion is tradition and just an acceptance of traditional norms 
is crucial for maintaining the fabric of coherent society, he says. And therefore, he says that the, he says, Emuna, Emuna depends on tradition, the belief, you know, Rambam would have argued that belief depends on, on rational thought and so on, but he takes the more traditional view that religion hinges on tradition, religion rests on the foundation of tradition, he says, and it's so delicate, once you start tampering and altering and uh, reshaping, he says, then uh, who knows where we'll end up, he says, yes, even if the changes that we're considering are relatively minor, he says, but, but once, you, once, you, uh, once you open that door a crack, he says, you know, who knows what's going to come through, he says, once we, once we start accepting that tradition is not binding and we can innovate and we can change, he says, who knows where we're going to end up, you know, one guy will do this, next guy will do that, and soon we'll end up with nothing left of the religion. Once again, uh, the, obviously religion does evolve, obviously we do change, but once again, the basic concern was quite prescient that once they did start allowing, once the reformers did start changing things, they ended up changing uh, much more significant things as well. And therefore, he says, we have to, uh, it's a slippery slope, a very slippery slope, he says, we have to take a hard line, draw a line in the sand and say no changes, because once they start making changes then all of religion is, uh, is, is, can go up in smoke by people feeling that they have the right to uh, just change whatever they want. Relying on Seichel is, not a, is, not a, is a very dubious guide to life, he says, and we, we, have, to, we have to focus on tradition and Amuna, and therefore no tampering, simply keep things as they are. He says the... He then goes into an interesting discussion. He says that... He says in terms of the, the Gula... We, we, we emphasize redemption, he says. He says, this, is, this dovetails wholly with our, we also believe in the legitimacy and we pray for the well-being of the temporal government, he says. Just as we ask for bidding Beis HaMikdash, so too we pray for the government to be successful. The Tzvilah Ba'ad Shlom HaMadina that we say in Shul uh, on a weekly basis, he says, we do that as well. It, it goes together in tandem. We pray for the success of the government now and the Gula in the longer term. And Klolo Shaldover, he emphasizes, there's nothing in all our tefillahs, there's no opposition to the interest of the crown. He says, chas v'shalom, shlomo hu shlomenu, our interests are perfectly in sync, the crown's interests are our own, and therefore, and therefore the, the governments are very happy with us. Obviously, this passage was, uh, this passage was, was, was directed at the, at the governments, the, the governments might be, the governments might be afraid that the that, that the Jews that the that the Jews would be uh, that the traditionalists were going to be you know, did, didn't have a sufficient allegiance to their uh, sufficient allegiance to, to themselves. So obviously they they, they had to be very careful to emphasize that the that they were not uh, that that they were that they were very happy with the government, as Wikipedia puts it. The references to the Geula was a contentious matter that could be interpreted as disloyalty to the states in which they resided and be used against them. All references to the omission of these prayers were obfuscated and accompanied by long declaration of fealty to the kings and sovereigns and explanations that this faith did not conflict with earnest patriotism and identification with one's nation. So that's what uh, Rav Lorbebem is doing here. He's assuring the government, you have nothing to fear from our emphasis on the Geula. We are loyal subjects as long as uh, in the current world order we are loyal and committed to the, the sovereign government. None of our tefillah should be interpreted as treasonous and as, uh, as disloyal. And therefore, we, we absolutely have to keep all our tefillahs exactly as they are. The Malchus has no, interest in, uh, has no interest in challenging that. And that's what we should do. Shinun Neschos, he says, is poisonous, he says. It's like a dangerous snake, he says. There are many other reasons, he says. 
Similarly, for Lashon Kodesh, he says, there are, uh, it's also an issue of tradition, he says, the Anshin Knesset established the prayers in Hebrew for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, we've kept them the way they are. Furthermore, he says, the, the, the meaning is always lost in translation. There are various Hebrew words that are more or less synonymous, Gibor, Izuz, Amitz, Chazak, they all mean mighty, but they all have nuances of different meaning. We say some of them, we don't say other ones. We say, The Gemara says, somebody once said, Gibor, Izuz, Amitz, Chazak, and he was, uh, he was silenced. They said, we, we don't say those. So Chazal knew certain words they said, certain words they didn't say. Even, even words that to us sound very similar, they can be different. Once we start trying to translate the words into, into German, into Hungarian, into whatever European language they would, ha- we really have no confidence. We can, produce the, we, can, we can reproduce the nuances accurately. Anyone with experience in translation you know, will understand what a difficult task it is to, uh, to preserve all these things with 100% accuracy. And there are synonyms, there are synonyms as well in Hebrew, that other synonyms look in a concordance, he says. We don't always understand the differences, he says. And therefore, furthermore, he makes another very interesting argument. He says, Limud Lashna Kodesh. It's a mitzvah to learn Hebrew. It's a mitzvah to, to study Hebrew, he says. It's a mitzvah to, uh, to retain and to uh, inculcate in ourselves, to the extent that we can, knowledge of the Hebrew language. If we would stop praying in Hebrew, we would lose whatever fluency in Hebrew that we had. If we still learn Torah, I guess, and primary sources, we still have that. But the davening is one of the primary ways with which we inculcate and, and maintain some level, at least, of familiarity with Hebrew, he says. If we would stop praying in Hebrew, we would lose that connection to Hebrew, which is a bad thing as well. And therefore, Mikal HaAmur, from everything he said until now, he says, these are his three conclusions. Isr Gamur, absolutely prohibited to play the organ in the synagogue, both during the week and on Shabbos, even by a non-Jew. Asr to change any Nusuch of Tefillah that were established by our ancestors, and also to mispalel in any language other than Hebrew. Again, I, I don't fully understand, certainly, the last two elements of his, the last two points of his argument. Obviously, we do change things. Obviously, we add things. We modify things. We, uh, we certainly do, to, uh, to some extent. And we're not completely inflexible about, the, about the, the prayers. But on the whole, we're, on the whole, we're traditional. On the whole, we're conservative. For example, there's, there's a great debate among contemporary uh, Zionist uh, rabbinic figures about the prayer of Nachem on Tisha We talk about how Eretz Yisrael and Jerusalem are desolate and uninhabited and all, uh, and all miserable. And they're not. People say, Baruch Hashem, you go to Yerushalayim, it's beautiful there. There's millions of Jews, however many there are there. It's Torah and Tefillah and, uh, and a living Jewish culture. It's, it's not Shomema, it's not Bezuya, it's not Chareva. So some say it refers to the lack of the Beis HaMikdash, or the lack of full political sovereignty over Jerusalem, and the need of Israel has to uh, not offend the nations of the world about what they do in Jerusalem, the fact they don't bulldoze all the churches, and so on. Others have just a general attitude of traditionalism, that this is an ancient tefillah, we don't, uh, we don't tamper with it. Similarly, with regard to things like uh, saying Holocaust Kinos, this is widespread that we do in, in, in much of Orthodoxy, we do add a keynote or two for the Holocaust on Tisha B'av, but other very traditionalist thinkers were against it. Rav Salvechik was against it. He said that Tefillah was written by the Anjik and Of course, he concedes Piyutim and Kinos weren't. Piyutim and Kinos were much later. They're only uh, a few hundred years ago, he says. But good, they were earlier, source, earlier authorities. They were venerable Bali Masora. We can't just do this. We can't just make our own Tefillahs. So in general, even, even outside the context of fighting the reform, there certainly were always voices that were very, very traditionalist, very, very reactionary 
just don't change, don't make things up. On the other hand, we obviously do. The, the keynotes were all added in the medieval, mostly in the medieval period. Many of them were in the medieval period. The, the slichos, we say, many of them were added in the, typically from the medieval period. Some, were, some go back earlier to Rosa Rakaler, largely medieval. The Yotzros and stuff. And obviously we do say things. The tefillah for, the, the for Eretz Yisrael, obviously, is a relatively new tefillah. So this is always a question about, uh, we, we, do have, we do, of course, in Orthodox Judaism, have a tremendous respect for tradition and precedent. But it's not, uh, it's not absolute. We do sometimes change things. Obviously, the, the Rabbanim of the early 19th century, they saw correctly that these particular changes that were being contemplated were very, very dangerous, as history bore out that they were. But again, on, on the merits, it, you can't really argue that any change is automatically anti-Torah unacceptable. We certainly do have a very strong, uh, kind of very strong inertia, very strong resistance to change. It's not immutable, but in these cases, at least, the, certainly when it comes to the language of Tefillah, of the Hanjik and there was a tremendous reluctance by Rav Lorberbaum, and as well as on the, on the part of many of his colleagues, to allow any tampering whatsoever with, uh, with, with Tefillah. Not, not to change the language from Hebrew to German, not to change, not to change the Nusach of Tefillah in any way, even if there weren't any great theological issues. Putting aside the issue of praying for the redemption and so on, even just the, the basic question of tampering per se, even that, Rav Lorbevam held, was gravely problematic, and uh, it, that, that was not a concession we should make to the Reform. This is, this is toward the end of his tshuva, he just winds up, he, he, he once again appeals to the Rabbanim of Hamburg, the community of Hamburg, he says, that uh, he says, he appeals to their honor, he says, that, you know, what do you find so offensive with the, with the time, the hallowed and time-honored minhagim and neschos of tefillah, he says, why do you have to start making trouble? Why would you want to start making trouble and changing things, he says? Look at the, look at the glory of your community, he says, Teferes, Makalaschem, Hanamana, Kirya, Malaya, Kaltuv, a city full of everything good, Vechemdas Hashem, and now you want, to, you want to become a mockery, an object of derision. If, if, you, if you are seduced by the reformers, everyone will say that the, the great honor, the great religious majesty of your ancestors, your, your parents and grandparents, has now been disgraced if you give in to the reformers, that they were nechmadim bizmanam, they were chashuvim. Now today they're going to be like, uh, today they, they decided it's all sheker, that they, they've cast away their, the, the beauty of their traditions, he says, is that the right way to go? Do you think that's reasonable? He says, that's, that's completely wrong, he says. He says, to do this, you're an Am Kadosh Lashem Elokecha. Again, this is beneath you. This is what we say today. We don't say, how dare you? We say, you're better than this. You know, why would you want to do this? He says, don't, don't be misled by this, uh, this nobody, this person who has, uh, who's worthless, who tries to seduce you and says, give up the the richness of your tradition, replace it by the latest fads, he says. And that's his position. This is Yisrael. I write this, he says, out of love for the Torah, out of love for all the Jewish people. He says, I signed this, I date this today, he says, Rosh Chodesh Adar, Tov Kuf Ayintes, that is 1819, those were the years of the first battle of the Hamburg Temple, 1818, 1819, and so and this is signed on Rosh Chodesh Adar, Tovkufayin Tess, by Yaakov of Lisa. Thank you all for listening. A, uh, a mouthful of a tshuva certainly uh, touches on great issues relevant to uh, other contexts as well. 
Obviously, some of the positions you know, might be debatable. We can challenge how they would apply in other contexts. We can question how they apply in other contexts. But this is one of the this is one of the great broadsides in the in, in the early great battles against the the nascent reform movement.